You've tuned in to Chaos to the Fly, a podcast for fans of the darkness and the supernatural by Greg Newbigin. If you'd like to reach out to provide feedback or say hello, send an email to info at chaostothefly.com or if you'd like to share an experience, send the details to stories at chaostothefly.com and it might be included on future episodes. Now, let's get down to business, shall we? Hello, Fly friends, and welcome to episode 12 of season one of Chaos to the Fly. I'm your host, Greg Newbegin, as I am every other week as well. So welcome to this new episode, and thank you for joining. Last week, what did we look at? The gin. We talked about the gin, the origin of potentially the genies. I guess you'll just have to listen to find out what the actual story is there. Quite interesting stuff. We also had a really well-written story about a ghost bride, which was pretty cool. I enjoyed that one, um, which was submitted to me by the same person who submitted the story that was aboard the ship out at sea, or the, the rig out at sea. That was really cool. And lastly, of course, there was a review of Super... I mean, not Superman, Brightburn. Brightburn. Horror Superman, as I like to call it. Really worth a watch, that one. It's just good. Just go see it. Listen to my review first, then go see it. I only do half-hour episodes. I don't make them too long. Can't be that hard. Uh, Anyway, last episode was a fantastic one. I think every episode has been fantastic, but that's up to you to decide, I guess. Anyway, on to this week. I have more interesting stuff for you, of course. So let's crack right on into it, and I'll see you on the other side. Baphomet. It's likely that you've heard of Baphomet by now, or perhaps under the alternative pronunciation, Baphomet. But if you haven't heard the name, then you've almost certainly seen the imagery. Picture an androgynous human sitting cross-legged, robes covering the lower half of the body, the chest bare, right hand raised, left hand pointing down, black wings upon its back, and a large horned goat's head in place of the human's head, with a pentagram burning in its forehead. This is the famous image of Baphomet penned by Eliphas Levi in the mid-1800s. Yes, the goat-headed demon that many associate with Satan is, in fact, Baphomet, a demon who was never mentioned in any traditional text, but seemingly appeared from nowhere in the middle of the 11th century. The name Baphomet appeared in literature for the very first time in a letter penned by Crusader Anselm of Ribamont, reading, As the next day dawned, they called loudly upon Baphomet, and we prayed silently in our hearts to God. Then we attacked and forced all of them outside the city walls. Who was Baphomet at the time? And you might notice that I pronounced it Baphomet. Not sure why. It was spelled that way, so I just went with it. Anyway, who was Baphomet at the time? It's somewhat unknown, but modern scholars suggest that the term was used by Crusader troubadours to refer to Muhammad. Keep in mind that many of the places that were raided during the time of the Crusades were, of course, of Islamic faith, and the word Baphomet then appears several times in literature from the time of the Crusades. Later, when King Philip IV of France suppressed the Knights Templar, he forced upon them a period of inquisition, levelling horrendous charges against them. 
horrendous charges at the time, at least. The name Baphomet then appears several times in trial transcripts of the time, as many Templars were accused of worshipping the heathen idol, which is what Baphomet was referred to as. Given the Knights Templar and the Crusades had origins in Christianity, it may be hard to believe that these men worshipped some false deity, but it does seem as if some of this may have been true, as many men confessed to certain rituals within the Templar tradition, which included the worship of this Baphomet, or as some of them referred to it, this Mahomet. And what is Mahomet then? Some believe it to be an old French pronunciation of the word Muhammad, which was then corrupted over time into the word Baphomet, suggesting that the Templars were being painted as a kind of new wave Muslim. In fact, it is believed that the word Mahomet became the word Mamet in Old English, which was a term that meant false idol or false god. But there are of course other suggested origins for the word. Several referred to the word wisdom, or to more esoteric beliefs. For example, an investigation into the origins of the word in the mid-20th century book The Baphomet suggests that it may have been a kind of code to represent a laboratory for alchemical philosophers, taken from the term Basileus Philosophorum Metallaricum. I'm sure I pronounced that wrong. Believe what you will with regard to that one. Others associate the Templars with Freemasonry, suggesting that the term Baphomet came from the Greek Befe Metus, which meant baptism of wisdom, and I'm sure I mispronounced that as well. Other interpretations using Hebrew have also resulted in translation to the word wisdom, albeit through some kind of clever means. Whatever the origins, Baphomet has somewhat been ingrained in modern society and belief structures. These ideas were further developed over the years, with one historian of the 19th century further describing the events of the Templar Inquisition. In this book, titled quite clumsily from a modern perspective, <clears throat> Discovery of the Mystery of Baphomet, by which the Knights Templars, like the Gnostics and Ophites, are convicted of apostasy, of idolatry, and of moral impurity by their own monuments. <clears throat> anyway, in this book, the author further developed the idea of Baphomet being worshipped as a worshipped entity, of it being hermaphroditic, and described by a number of of other polarities, which is kind of important. The writer referred to this idol as being a symbol of both wisdom and sensuality, and that Baphomet ultimately symbolized the baptism of fire or an enlightening of the mind. Bet you didn't think we were going there when this one started. I know I certainly didn't. However, the author then goes on to note that he didn't believe that these idols actually belonged to the Templars, as what the Templars were known to carry generally held to be images of saints. At a later point in the same century, Baphomet took on his more modern form, with the help of course of Eliphas or Eliphas? I don't know, Levi, who helped Baphomet assert itself within the occult. In his books on high magic, both of which were written in the 1800s, he included the image of Baphomet described at the start of this discussion, which he referred to as the Sabbatic Goat. Without going into too much detail, his image of Baphomet included a great deal of symbolism that would appeal to occultists of the time and since, as many of the same symbolism remains unchanged. It should be noted at this point that Levi's image of Baphomet did not agree with descriptions of the idols believed to be worshipped by the Templars, 
but its similarity to images of the devil is likely what has resulted in its persistence in human memory. Since that time, and considering many feel Eliphas Levi to be instrumental in the formation of modern occultism, the concept of Baphomet has been adopted by many various traditions, from Alistair Crowley's Thelema and the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn, through the Gnostic, Gnostic, Gnostic? <clears throat> Catholic Church. While none of these use the symbolism of Baphomet to represent any malicious or devilish desires, more traditional forms of religion have twisted their use of the imagery to suggest otherwise, somewhat vilifying the practices. If interested, I will leave it upon yourself to investigate further, and I do recommend it because it is pretty interesting stuff. The use of a similar image of Baphomet within an inverted pentagram, which is referred to as the Sigil of Baphomet, I should be clear, is currently used as the official symbol of the Church of Satan, which is another misunderstood organization, but of course this is by design. And continuing that thought, the Satanic Temple, which is not related to the Church of Satan for those not in the know, planned to erect a statue of Baphomet very much in line with the image designed by Eliphas Levi beside a monument to the Ten Commandments at Oklahoma State Capitol. There was a lot of discussion and disagreement, and the statue ended up being erected near a warehouse in Detroit. A few years later, they also erected a similar statue in Arkansas for the same reasons, simply because there was another religious statue in the area, and it was only fair. Can't disagree. As a result of all this confusion, misdirection, and propaganda, Modern pop culture references to Baphomet all generally refer to him as a demon or, or a or the devil, which may well be the truth, as we really don't know where Baphomet came from, do we? For example, in the popular role-playing game Dungeons & Dragons, Baphomet is represented as a demon king who desires the end of civilization. The video game Doom, of course, also includes references to the imagery at various places within, and... It has to be said that, of course, there are plenty of heavy metal bands that reference Baphomet either in their name or in their songs or in their albums or on their covers or whatnot. <coughs> this week's ghost story is called Two Weeks of Hell and came from, of course, the ghost stories subreddit from user Benjamin Ryu. This is a, another really well-written story, so again, I'm reading it. Almost verbatim. Every summer, my grandparents would go on a cruise. They both worked incredibly hard their entire lives, and in their retirement would treat themselves to a couple of holidays a year. They had a lovely home where I would spend every Saturday night as a child, and every summer when they went on their cruise, they'd ask me to stay and look after the dog. I loved it. I was in my early 20s and still at home with my parents, so this was a chance for a bit of independence and to have the house to myself. I'd done it for a few years up until this point, and instead of throwing parties with my friends, which I'd previously done, I was looking forward to spending some time with my girlfriend, just chilling out. My grandparents filled the fridge with my favourite foods, they always left me a bit of spending money, and my granddad would always leave me a crate of beer in the garage. Awesome. The first night, me and my then-girlfriend didn't do anything special. We loved the freedom, we loved the fact we were going to spend a full two weeks together by ourselves. So we watched a movie and decided we were going to bed. While she was in the bathroom, all the power cut in the house. Wasn't really anything out of the ordinary. Went into the kitchen, found the switchboard and boom, suddenly there was light. We got in bed, put the telly on. I used to not be able to sleep without the TV and I'll explain that a little more later. And then we went to sleep. 
I remember waking up and hearing screaming coming from the TV. I looked to the dressing table clock and saw that the time was 3.33. It's incredibly cliche, I know, but it was true. I immediately laughed it off and dozed back to sleep. The next day we both went to work and both returned to my grandparents' house in the early evening. We chilled out doing what young couples do and decided it was time again to go to bed. Before I went to bed though, I'd always let Bonnie out, my grandparents' beautiful dog. I'd let her out to go and do her business on the back garden. My grandparents' back door led onto a conservatory, which then led onto a patio, which then led out into the back garden. I unlocked the back door, turned on the lights to the conservatory, and moved towards the conservatory door. Bonnie, though, didn't move from the back door. After a bit of convincing with some rich tea biscuits, I managed to convince her to move to the conservatory. There was no way I wasn't letting her out and having to scrape up dog poop the following morning. I unlocked the conservatory door onto the patio, and before I had the chance to fully open the door, there was a large thud that came from the conservatory window on my right. I stood frozen for what felt like an hour. I calmly closed the door and stood in shock, wondering what it could be. I wasn't scared at this point, just incredibly startled. I looked down at Bonnie, who was staring up at me, and decided it would be fine if she did her business in the house that night. I went to bed with my heart still pounding, but didn't mention it to my girlfriend. I woke again the next night with someone on the television screaming at 3.33am. The next day was my day off from work, and my girlfriend was working. I had the house to myself, I had nothing special planned, I was just going to chill out and play some PlayStation. I'd pretty much shrugged off the thud ordeal in the conservatory from the night before. Bonnie hadn't left any presents for me, yay, but she did run the fastest I've ever seen her run out into the back garden when I opened the door in the morning. I couldn't stop thinking about being woken up at 3.33am for two consecutive nights. I wonder what the consequences would be if it happened a third time. I laughed it off again and tried to enjoy the rest of my day off. Mid-afternoon, I received a phone call from my girlfriend telling me that her car had broken down while at work. This was a huge bummer because we lived over 70 miles apart and I knew that I wasn't going to be able to see her for a while until it was fixed. She apologised that she wouldn't be able to stay with me while I was dog-sitting, but I told her not to worry about it and that we'll see each other again soon. That afternoon, I went for a shower, and as luck would have it, I was just lathering myself up when I heard the phone ring. I let it ring, knowing that if it was important, it'd go to the answering machine and I could always ring them back. But the ringing stopped and immediately began again. I thought it must have been important, so I ran out of the shower to grab the phone, suds and all. When I answered, though, no one was there, just silence, no dial tone. Someone must have been on the line, but not talking. I probably said hello a dozen times before the line cut dead. And the second it did, the doorbell rang. Now I was in a precarious position. I'd run out of the shower, full-blown naked, to answer the phone, and I hadn't taken a towel with me. The phone I'd answered was in the kitchen, and the front door was at the end of the hallway on my right. I sheepishly stuck my head around the corner towards the front door to see who it was, but there was no one there. Only a couple of seconds had passed, but whoever had rang the doorbell had already gone. I wasn't scared or concerned at the time as it was broad daylight, so I got back in the shower and within a minute the phone and the doorbell were both ringing at the same time. I immediately got out of the shower, wrapped myself in a towel and headed for the door. No one was there. The phone had stopped ringing the second I left the shower. I carried on with the rest of my day and that night I didn't wake up at all, much to my relief.
The next day I was in the living room watching television. I was sat in my granddad's electric reclining chair which was a comfy beast. It was placed in the far left corner of the living room with the TV in the far right. On the left of the chair was the window looking out towards the street. The window was huge, it was actually three separate windows with a beautiful pattern running through all. While I was watching television, the doorbell rang. This was quite strange as my grandparents lived in the corner of a little cul-de-sac and if anyone had driven or walked to the door, I would have seen them. I didn't think much of it as I must have been engrossed in whatever rubbish I'd been watching. Bonnie was up on all fours in the hallway staring at the door. I thought that maybe it was my auntie making sure I hadn't burned the house down, but when I got to the door, no one was there. Again. Now I was becoming a little bit more distressed, and being by myself was making it worse. I thought maybe it was burglars scoping the place out, seeing if anyone was home. That night, just before bed, I went to let Bonnie out. I opened the back door, turned on the lights to the conservatory and patio, and opened the conservatory door. To my horror, out on the patio was a mangled bird. It had no head, and the left side of its body had been torn off by something. What shocked me the most, though, was that it was still walking about. I didn't know what to do, so I rang my girlfriend. I was explaining to her what I'd seen, and when I looked back onto the patio, the bird had gone. I went outside to see if I could find it, but it had buggered off like it was never there. I decided that Bonnie could do her business in the house again if she must. At this point, it was all becoming a little too much for me. I spoke to my auntie and asked if my cousin and his girlfriend wanted to dog sit instead. I explained that my girlfriend couldn't stay anymore anyway and that they'd probably appreciate the time alone. Obviously, they jumped at the chance. It's cowardice, I know. That night, I went back home and thought it would all be over. But I was wrong. Dead wrong. A few days after I'd got back into my comfort zone and was just sitting watching TV in my bedroom, out of nowhere, there were two loud strums on my acoustic guitar. I sat there in disbelief for a moment, but then decided I'd had enough. So I asked whoever did it to do it again. The hairs on my arms rose with anticipation and fear. I asked multiple times, but nothing. I decided it's probably best I went downstairs where my sister and my mum were. As I went downstairs though, I heard the guitar fall over. I couldn't bring myself to tell them what happened for fear of them thinking I was nuts. So I went down as if nothing had happened. Another few days had gone by and at this point I was exhausted. Even though nothing serious had happened and I'd not seen anything further, I felt like I was going crazy. I decided it was probably best that I have an early night. I put the television on for background noise and faced the wall. Within seconds, I heard my television shut off, followed by heavy breathing. I lay silently with my eyes shut, terrified, as I heard the breathing get closer. It was deliberate and calculated. Each step it got closer, the louder the breathing got. I was frozen in fright. As it approached the bed, I could feel it breathe on the back of my neck. Every hair on my body stood up. I could feel whatever it was lurking over my body. A few agonizing seconds passed, followed by a gigantic roar in my ear. I jumped to my feet, stood there breathless, pouring sweat. I was absolutely terrified. I looked at my clock and saw that it was 2.15 in the morning. I'd gone to sleep around 9ish. What felt like seconds had actually been hours. Scared to go back to sleep, I tiptoed downstairs not to wake anyone, but to my surprise all the lights were on. I walked into the living room and found my mum having a cigarette. 
I asked what she was doing up so late and she explained to me that she just had a horrible dream in which me, my sister, her and my stepdad all awoke in the middle of the night because things were floating around the house. Apparently we'd all gained telekinetic powers and could control anything within the house. I laughed along with her as she explained her ludicrous dream up until she got to the end. At the end of the dream, we heard a terrifying roar come from upstairs. We crept up the stairs, following the sounds from above. As we got to the top, it was apparent that the sounds were coming from my room. We went in together and all gasped as we saw a demonic hand open the hatch to the attic. That's when she woke up and the dream ended. Yep, that was actually the end of her dream. As you can imagine, I didn't share my dream with her. Later that morning, I became so tired that I couldn't resist sleep any longer, and I got back into bed looking at the hatch that led to the attic. I had a dream that something was trying to pull me out of my bed by my feet, and when I awoke the next morning, my right foot was covered in scratches. The events had really begun to take a toll on my mental well-being. I didn't dare sleep, and I didn't want to be left alone. I dreaded coming home from work, but after another few more days without incident, I was starting to feel a little bit better, and less like a nutter. A few days later, I was at home with my mum playing PlayStation in my room, when my mum asked if I wanted anything from the shop. I told her I was fine, didn't think anything of it when she left. The second she left though, there was a loud bang that came from her room. At this point, I'd had enough. Just like when my guitar had played, I encouraged her to do it again. Immediately, it responded with two large bangs. I rose from my chair and walked out onto the landing, where all the bedrooms met. I stood there staring intently into my mother's bedroom, which was pitch black. I asked her to do it again. This time, nothing. I walked into her room and turned on her light to see books laid out across the floor, obviously the cause of the noises I'd heard. I stood in the middle of the room and dared them to do it again, a madman talking to himself in his parents' bedroom, but nothing. I'd had my fill of whatever had been happening to me and decided that enough was enough. I told them exactly what I thought of them, using every expletive that I could think of, just some manic crazed lunatic screaming at the abyss and telling it to fuck off. A few minutes later, my mum came back from the shop. I went downstairs, and finally I explained everything that I'd gone through over the last couple of weeks. She patiently listened to me, and it felt great to get this nightmarish burden off my chest. When I finished, she told me that her, my stepdad, and my sister have always feared my bedroom, and it's always made them feel uneasy to enter when I'm not there. She also told me a story where, while I was at my grandparents, her and my stepdad had an argument, so my dad had decided to sleep in my bed, but he hurriedly ran back to their room as something had pushed him while he was trying to sleep. She also told me that the reason I slept with the TV on is that when I was a child, my actual dad passed away, and my granddad told me that my dad would come to visit me while I was sleeping. Instead of this being comforting, it terrified me, so I could never sleep in the dark. Since that day though, I've never had any more experiences. I still regularly visit my grandparents at their home, and I check back in just as much with my parents. My room is exactly the same as when I left. No one dare enter when I'm not there. I was surprised that when I moved out years ago that my sister never took it. Her bedroom's tiny, but the unnerving presence was just too much for her. The Rising The Rising is a book series. 
It's a zombie story which is told across two books. The first book's called The Rising, the second is Cities of the Dead, and they're both written, of course, by horror novelist Brian Keane. As an author that likes to cover post-apocalyptic stories in great detail, with a heavy emphasis on the gore and depravity that comes along with it, his books, though, may not appeal to everyone, so that's just a warning up front. I'm covering these together as, sadly, they really need to be read together to obtain the full story. This normally wouldn't be a criticism of a series, after all, it is the nature of a series, but in this case, the cliffhanger at the end of the first book doesn't even resolve the goal of that story, which is a bit cheap and frustrating, if I'm honest. Anyway, it's the story of a few core characters in the middle of a zombie apocalypse. It's a story of what drives them to survive, and it's a story of what drives others to control. It has a very original approach to the nature of the zombies themselves, but the way it plays out isn't terribly different in reality. I don't want to say much more for fear of ruining the story, but it does play out over a large area of the United States. Overall, the books are fairly well written. This isn't poetry, so I'm not too picky, and I did listen via Audible, so it's hard to know whether the errors I heard were the fault of the writer or the reader, but it follows a fairly interesting and complex path that intertwines the story of several characters, and like many modern titles, isn't afraid to kill off someone the reader may come to like. However, some of the content is questionable, as Keane goes into way too much detail with regards to some of the depravity within, especially with regards to female characters and what they endure within the apocalypse. Is this such a bad thing? Not really, although I do have to say even I felt he perhaps went a little further than needed to at times, and I wouldn't consider myself a prude. But I guess it did work to build tension and emotion, I'm just not certain it was absolutely necessary. Further, the dialogue is at times cheap and overly cinematic, but this is a minor nitpick as it does generally make for a mass, generally make for a more fast-flowing prose. And who am I to criticise anyway? My work probably reads pretty much the same. While I enjoyed the story overall and I found the premise interesting, but certainly not mind-blowingly clever, the manner in which Keane ties it all up is really unsatisfying in my opinion, and some readers may find it insulting given the time they put into the tale over the course of the two books, so buyer beware in this case. Alrighty, so I hope you enjoyed the meat and potatoes, as they say, of episode 12. Why did I choose these stories? Well, Baphomet, I chose at the very last second. And it's because, for various reasons, I have been doing research into meditation, which I'll get into a bit later, and things like that. And just during my research, I came across the image of Baphomet by Eliphas Levi. And I thought, that's the one I'm doing. Obviously, that's, you know, demonic. It's a famous image. I have to talk about Baphomet. And thinking of it, I realized I know nothing about Baphomet. As far as I'm concerned, it's a demon or the devil. Is it another name for the devil? I don't know. And I was really interested to find out it is not. In fact, the story of Baphomet is very interesting. There's a hell of a lot more to it. Really, all I told you was a very general overview. There's a lot more to it in terms of the symbology that Eliphas, however you say his name, 
is French. I don't speak French, so I don't know. It could be Aliphas, Aliphas, I I don't know. Levi, he put a lot of symbology into the, um, the image that he drew. So it's interesting stuff. It's pretty cool. So that's that. Uh, Two Weeks of Hell, another very cool story that I found in the Ghost Stories subreddit. And I do encourage you to check out the Ghost Stories subreddit. It is, of course, a subreddit that is focused entirely on true experiences. So they expect that the people who are sharing the stories are telling a story of something that actually happened to them. Um, Some of them are better writers than others, but all the stories are just great. Um, So, yeah, that's another one. And thank you to Benjamin Ryu for sharing that with us. Lastly, The Rising. Because I want to write a horror novel, I figured I needed to read some horror books. So I found these. They weren't terribly expensive. I wanted to do a little bit of research into writing about more gory aspects of things, which is why I uh, went for, for Brian Keane. His work's pretty good. I'll give him that. Like, it's it's exciting. It's fast-paced. It's all of that kind of stuff that I do like. But, yeah, a little bit overboard in terms of some of the in- imagery. And he he does some he does some different things. Now, I don't want to spoil the way that the story ends, but it's, it's non-traditional ending. I'll put it that way. Which is not such a bad thing, but it, it really depends on, you know, what people are hoping uh, for at the end of the book. So... Hmm. It's up to you if you want to read it. I I enjoyed it overall, I've got to be honest, but yeah. Hmm. Anyway, that was episode 12. This week's topic is meditation. Life's hard, you know? Life is really hard sometimes, and all of us get to a point where it's just sometimes too much, and it gets a bit stressful, and it's a little bit too fast, especially now with the internet People can call you any old time you like because you're carrying a phone in your pocket. They can send you an email. They can send you a message. They can track you on GPS. If you need to find out some information, it's all too easy to find out now. It's at the tip of your fingers. You don't have to go to a library anymore to find it all out. So everything is now in our pockets and people demand everything to be done now, now, now. And it's all pretty stressful. Life doesn't seem to stop for anybody. So from my perspective, I was starting to feel a bit stressed out, a bit like my entire being was stretched out into, you know, a single string that was fraying at the edges. And I needed to find a way to get myself back on track. And I've always enjoyed meditation. I've, I, you know, studied karate for a long time in my life. And that includes a lot of philosophical, you know, Eastern philosophical beliefs and things in terms of Zen. So I've always had those interests in me and I've always, you know, having had an interest in religion growing up, I was interested in, you know, Buddhism and things like that. So I did look into a lot of that. So I've been doing a lot of research into meditation recently and, you know, looking at the idea that we as human beings tend to focus a lot on the past or, or or on the future. But the reality is neither the past nor the future actually ever exists. We may experience the past and in the future, we will experience the future, but all we're ever really experiencing is now. 
and too many of us are living in the past or living in the future and ignoring the now. So that's why I've started meditating. Uh, I actually meditate quite frequently now. I probably do at least an hour a day across two or three sessions, and I find it's really helping me feel better. And I do recommend, you know, a lot of people out there think that meditation is tied to religious beliefs, and it's absolutely not. It is entirely tied to your own damn crazy brain and thinking too much and slowing things down every once in a while and giving it a chance to reboot, relax. There's a lot more to it if you want to get into it, but at its core, I think that's all people need. And I think a lot more people need it than realize uh, mental health is a huge issue these days. And something small like this can help people. It's not going to help everybody, but it certainly helps me. I have been through a lot of issues in terms of mental issues that I've dealt with over the course of my life. Uh, some of them were quite bad when I was a bit younger. Now I deal with them. Um, and now I have much more immense pressure on my shoulders compared to what I had when I was a 20-year-old. So I think some of that, at least, is due to meditation. Anyway, my secret this week is related to meditation. I almost tried transcendental meditation, TM as they like to call it. Now, why is that a secret? Because I'm kind of embarrassed that I almost tried it. If I'm honest, I see transcendental meditation almost as bad as Scientology. I don't see it bad as, as bad as Scientology because it's trying to teach you some, something that's not real, you know, that we're all aliens and blah, 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 blah. I think it's just a ripoff. Meditation should be free. And the, the, from my uh, studies into transcendental meditation, all they're teaching is basic meditation practice, mantra meditation. It's nothing new. It's nothing you can't learn anywhere else for absolutely free. And yet I looked into it. I was going to go to a, a, a day where I sit for an hour and I'm lectured by someone about transcendental meditation. And then I sign up with them and they would become my mentor for the uh, low, low price of $1,000 for four sessions or something like that. I was like, what? $250 per session to be taught how to do something that I kind of already know how to do. Wow. I'm in the wrong job. But anyway, that's my little embarrassing story. If you do do transcendental meditation and you enjoy it and you have the means to do it, don't take my words in the wrong way. Enjoy transcendental meditation. Continue enjoying it if that's what's working for you. But if you were thinking about doing it, you can learn how to do it for free. Trust me. If you do need a guide, though, well, maybe transcendental meditation is going to be for you. But there's probably other ways to find guides. Just my two cents. Anyway, as we have no reviews again, which does always, as it does every week, make me a sad panda... I will simply say this, if you are enjoying Chaos to the Fly and you'd like to continue listening to more and more episodes into season two, because we've only got three, three episodes left of season one, make sure you click like, you click, sub, click subscribe, and you uh, submit those reviews. Just to let you know, in the future, I will be switching 
podcast provider. It shouldn't affect anything, but they're always famous last words anyway, aren't they? So hopefully nothing will disappear. Hopefully everything will stay as it is, but just a little heads up. I'm not going away. I'm not changing anything. I'm not stopping doing what I'm doing. So if anything happens, it's just because, damn it, some <laughs> the, the feed uh, switched uh, providers. So that's all. Um, but you can always go to chaostothefly.com to see any updates on that. I'll make sure I put a post there if anything does happen. Anyway, thank you for listening as always, and I'll see you next week. Chaos to the Fly might mostly be my little project, but it couldn't be what it is without the help of some key individuals and resources. So I'd like to thank the following. Thanks to Simon Exley for his brilliant music making skills, providing all music used in the show. You can look for his work at inexilerecords.bandcamp.com. Thanks also to Mr. Mr. Yarn for his glorious voice work, which you can hear in the intro and outro. You can find him at disco underscore box on Twitter. And last but not least, thank you to Simon Sherry, who provided the excellent artwork for the show, including our spooky mascot. Follow Simon at Simon Sherry on Twitter. Before I go, however, I should mention that the sound effects were obtained from zapsplat.com. And if you're looking for me, you can find me at Mad Capsules on Twitter. Thanks for listening to another episode of Chaos to the Fly. It would really help if you could leave us a review on iTunes or simply share the podcast with others you feel may be interested. To keep the spooky conversation going, follow us at Chaos to the Fly on Twitter and Facebook. Back to work, flies. <laughs>